This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to episode six of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually as always by a cast of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy, Virginia O'Shea and Joe Parsons. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Good to be here. Hello. hello. Hey, great lines all around. Uh, Joe, you missed the last episode last time. Where have you been and how did you celebrate SFTR deadline day? Oh, I completely forgot about it. Um, no, I've, 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 <laughs> I've been somewhere, you know, where I've, where I've been on a spiritual journey and, and bettered myself, but it was literally just enjoying the benefits of a staycation. Most most of that question was to tee you up to talk about SFTR, but I like how you dodged it. Said uh, I didn't, I forgot about it, and talked about your holiday instead. I hope most of the banking community also heard, heard the same response. <laughs> it sounds like they did, although uh, yeah, they might get in a bit more trouble than, than you were for getting it. Um, Sean, Virginie, welcome back to you. Um, did you remember SFTR deadline day? Yes, honestly, well, it slipped. It totally slipped my mind. I have to say, which I'm kind of embarrassed about. I I was reminded by an Esma tweet, which I took the Mickey out of, and then they they liked the tweet of me taking the Mickey out of them, which I thought <laughs> was quite funny. You, you got a you got a like from Esma on Twitter. I did. I did. It's impressive. <laughs> that may be the biggest moment of our short podcast history. <laughs> I think, John, I think maybe me or you, we got a retweet from Gianna Cola, didn't we, from CFTC? I think that yeah. might be the highlight of my social media activity. We used to get very excited when a CFTC, CFTC commissioner would retweet us or even <laughs> follow us, you know. But usually it's when they've quit and, go and uh, gone and joined the DTCC that we get the, uh, get the likes. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of Twitter, how uh, did everyone see last night's Twitter hacks? Um, and... Ginny, were you tempted to take up Kanye's offer at all of doubling your money through Bitcoin? I missed it. Actually, I wasn't on Twitter at the time. So I woke up this morning and everyone was talking talk about something about blue checks. I'm like, what? What? So you, you know that point where you go sort of searching backwards through Twitter to see what was going on? Yeah, I did the same this morning. Um, I, I was actually surprised to see that Sean didn't have a blue tick. I thought he'd reached that level of fame where where he should be verified. But Sean, you must have had fun with all this. Uh... Oh, no. It was, I mean, it was actually kind of fun. I mean, it was a, like a, a glorious two hours where blue check Twitter was uh, locked out. So it was a, a lot of fun banter, actually, to be honest. And I think on the, the crypto stuff was, I mean, harmless enough, honestly. I think that's the, it will be interesting to see what comes out of the Twitter hack because it wasn't, you know, could have been much worse, I suppose, in, in a real world sense, rather than a couple couple dudes trying to scam some Bitcoin off people. True. It's just so surprising, isn't it, to see like the trusted accounts. I mean, celebrities, yeah, but things like Apple being hacked and that message coming out. And, right. and in, all, in all seriousness, a genuine question, are things like this good for Bitcoin in terms of did it, did it continue to raise the profile or does it just give bad associations and bad links with it? Um, yeah, Sean, what do you think first? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm a, a noted Bitcoin skeptic anyway, so take this with a grain of salt. But I think it, um, I think it certainly contributes to the perception of Bitcoin being sort of the Wild West. So I'm, I'm not sure it's really great um, for the efforts to sort of mainstream cryptocurrency. I mean, if they just, if they talked about Litecoin, I might have, I might have had second thoughts about it and be, oh, okay, maybe I will do it, but. Uh... Because <laughs> it was Bitcoin, I was like, nah, nah, not falling for that. Well, Bitcoin's never had a good reputation, has it? I mean, everybody used all the cyber security, it was cyber security hackers, 
um, and, and criminals and all of this stuff in the dark web are using it, right? So that's what, what people associate with it anyway. So I don't know. Did it change its perception? I doubt it. It's at a time where it's wanting to be taken serious by institutional investors. That's always the next step. And uh, yeah, um, I mean, look, Virginia, saying things like that, you know, you're asking for us to, uh, for trouble for, for the Bitcoin community. They're, they're very, they're, they come in their masses on sort of social media. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to poke a nest of, a nest of hornets. I'm a, yeah, I should be careful, right? Absolutely. Well, it feels like another podcast. Maybe we can tie it into a Bitcoin regulation podcast. And just before we move on to today's in-depth features, I think we've got a bit of breaking news from this morning. This is something we've always dreamed of happening on the FinMeg podcast. So here it is, Joe. What's the news? Yes, we do have some breaking news. Cue the uh, theme tune. Uh, we've got uh, so the Esma chair Stephen Major has uh, announced he will step down. Um, in March 2021, um, and well, this could be a you know a really interesting time for all those sort of FinReg experts, you know, to maybe sharpen your pencils, get those CVs ready. I know I will. <laughs> uh, so, so maybe you know, with with this in mind, um, Virginia, Sean, would you too? I ever ever consider, you know, sending that CV and becoming that Esma chair. And uh, if you were successful, what would be the first thing you would do as a Esma chair? The answer for me is absolutely not. <laughs> it's like a poison chalice. So I absolutely would, wouldn't ever want to, to take on that role, especially given where they've got a tough task ahead of them with regards to scrutiny over wire cards and what's going on with Baffin. So um, I'm not, I think it's a political hot potato. Somebody, somebody referenced it as a hot potato being chucked between the EC and ESMA at the moment. So I think that's a perfect analogy. So uh, no, thank you. I don't want to be dodging potato. <laughs> And, and obviously, this hypothetical question, uh, Sean, we're not actually suggesting you would uh, get your CV ready and, uh, and depart the wonderful city for, for this job. But <laughs> as a disclaimer, you must have a long list of ideas, surely. So there's, I have a running joke over on Twitter that every time a, uh, a FinReg job comes up that I'm going to apply for it. But I have to say the, the Esma one would be, a, it would be a, a challenging job for anyone. Um, and it's in particular, it's sort of a challenging period. So I'm not sure I would actually run headlong in, into that uh, job. <laughs> what what changes would you make if you were the ESMA chair? To be honest, like the the challenge, the changes as ESMA chair, the challenges are that your hands are sort of tied um, by what powers you're given by the commission or parliament. And honestly, the one thing I would change about ESMA, if I could wave a wand, is to give them no action power so they could issue no action relief which would make a lot of these challenges around regu regulatory implementations a lot easier so plenty more to talk about on sftr brexit csdr regulation coming up uh we are as we said six episodes in now and uh thought we'd start the episode with a bit of fun in a game that i'm going to call more or less or the same as numbers as there's there's always FinReg Angle podcasts. Now, this is a very confusing and, and complicated game, so let's uh, let's see how it goes. But the idea is to uh, I'm going to give you a topic or a situation, and you've got to tell me if there were more or less than the number of FinReg Angle episodes. <laughs> that should be self-explanatory. So, for example, if I said, were there more members of the Beatles and there are FinReg Angle podcasts, the answer is there are less Okay, so Joe, I'm going to come to you first. Were there more or less or the same amount of Oasis albums as there have been Finreg Angle podcasts? Right, so I, they, they sort of the, the whole Britpop battle with Blur. I'm, I'm sure Blur came out with oh, more it. than six, but then I don't think they've got the writing capability to put up more than six albums. So I'm going to say less. 
It's got to be more, surely. I think it's less. The correct answer is there were more. There were seven Oasis albums. Uh, Jeez. Yeah. Um, so this is a real music test. Sean, um, I've got an Irish theme for you. <laughs> more or less U2 albums since 2000. Oh, Christ. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say there were fewer U2 albums. That's correct. There were five U2 albums <laughs> since 2000. Can anyone believe that? I think all of them were forced on us by Apple as well. Yeah, no. Ter- <laughs> terrible, terrible situation. All right, point for you, Sean. Virginie, um, I looked through some of your Friday tracks to see uh, what, what theme and what band I should go for. Have there been more or less Fleetwood Mac members since their inception? More. Got to be more. There are the same amount. There are six. The six. Damn. Damn. (laughs) Okay, last round, last round, building on the success of the first round. Um, Joe, more or less Fast and Furious films? Oh, I definitely know. We're on to (laughs) Fast and Furious 9, 10, 11. So, yeah, more. That's correct. That that is right. Sean, I tried to find something with City in for you. So the IMDB rating of the Nicolas Cage classic City of Angels, is it more or less than six? It's got to be less, right? (laughs) (laughs) Any Nick Cage film is less. I I think the average Nick Cage film is under six, but this one was actually a 6.7, so I'm afraid. Wow. That's going to be a career high, isn't it? That's really... (laughs) It's really shaking my faith in the wisdom of crowds, to be honest. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere once that the average Jean-Claude Van Damme film was under 4, 4.0. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last but not least, Virginia, um, this is a nice little plug here. The amount of minutes it will take to fill in one of Firebrand's asset servicing innovation personality assessments. Less. Five minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> it's just five minutes to fill one in. So that's the correct. <laughs> exactly. uh, it is less. So I think it was a tie. Everyone got one point. Um, but more importantly, we, we had fun here. So everyone's a winner. <laughs> okay, moving on to our next topic, a bit more serious today. This one's called, hey, remember Brexit? And I thought we'd start by talking about one of the recent announcements, which was um, SDR. So the uh, Settlement Discipline Regime within S. Uh, CSDR. Um, and the big news that the UK would essentially be opting out of it. Um, we at Global Custodian published a story that this might happen earlier in the year, but um, our Chancellor uh, Rishi came out and, and announced it the other day in a speech, which took us all by surprise, I think, that um, the UK would not be adopting uh, SDR rules uh, post the transition period. So I guess first question, um, Virginie, surprising announcement? Of the UK opting out? Yes. I don't think it's surprising, given sort of political will, um, if it were, as it were. But um, do I think it's a good thing? I'm not sure it is. (laughs) I think it makes sort of compliance more complicated from Mm. the perspective of um, UK-based firms that deal with European entities and European markets. Because rather than having to just sort of comply with one regime, you're having to look at equivalents, you're having to look at sort of cross-border conflicts and problems that might arise as a result of us us diverging from it so i'm not sure it's it's a good a good move but i can see why they did it yeah i mean i i don't think it's that surprising per se i honestly think the timing is a little surprising though um in that there's still this sort of ongoing debate sort of in brussels around 
you know, possibly delaying uh, or refining the the settlement regime. So I think it's a little surprising that the UK came out sort of ahead of that and any announcement from the EU. Um, and I think it could, there is a chance it sort of could, you know, galvanize the, uh, the commission to sort of stick by their guns um, as not wanting to be seen to sort of bending to sort of now an ex member states uh, diversions on their regulations. So I think it probably opens up a little more uncertainty on everything. Mm. I mean, could it be a case of there's just so much going on with, uh, you know, Brexit and the COVID crisis as it is, this almost just is one less thing for, for the UK to, to adopt. And uh, I, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't actually affect that many firms, really, does it? Because of yeah, the cross-border nature of many businesses, it's really just probably smaller UK SM managers that, that benefit this from it, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, it's a probably, you know, the UK was always going to start diverging from EU regulations. So this is sort of a low stakes way to do it. As you point out, it's not a huge impact on the industry. Um, it's an issue that a, a lot of people in the industry sort of would like to see the settlement regime go away anyway. So it's a pretty popular piece of legislation to uh, to diverge on. And then to be fair to the UK, it does give certainty um, to, their, to the market on the direction they're going rather than the uncertainty you know, people are dealing with as they wait for Europe to finalize things. True, that's uh, that's a good point. Um, and, and do you think it sets a yeah sets a bit of a precedent then, Virginia? As you were saying, it's uh, it raises some complexities going forward. I mean, yeah, of course, it's all politics, isn't it? I mean, Finrag is is essentially when it comes down to it, it's, it's politically driven. So um, it it does sort of. If I put it this way, I don't know if we'll, we'll get a rating blocker here. But if it, it's two fingers up to the the European Commission in many ways, the Enesma, right? Yeah. That, you know, we will do our own thing, and I, I think I'll just continue down that road. But uh, when it comes to the the regime itself, there's been so many, so much pushback on the um, the buy in stuff that I just I just don't know why they don't consider delaying it further, um, or just bringing the penalties. Um, part of the regulation splitting them apart i'd love to see that happen because it, it just doesn't make sense to push it through right now because settlement fails have increased as a result of, of the crisis they'll probably have you know be, the volatility will probably cause more fails to to, to to happen um even the bank of england's been talking about that and it's it's committees behind closed doors so it's it's not a good it's not a good thing to be putting a, a, a penalty regime in and then a buy-in regime <laughs> on an industry that's already struggling so it doesn't make sense to me that they should push ahead with it but that's you know if, if the uk has galvanized them then i guess they will we'll see you know, you, you mentioned that just just before there that, 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 that firms have to deal with you know two different regimes then so what's what you know what, what do we think this will do for sort of workload of you know compliance teams i can, I can imagine sort of maybe the front office people who, who Maybe we're feared they have to learn a whole new sort of set of skills about settlement and back office processes. But then, you know, they might get a little bit of relief from this. But the compliance team, surely that their workload is going to have to double. Um, I mean, it's it's not just compliance, it's operations as well, because it really the, the the burden of a lot of this will fall on the operations teams to, to reduce the number of fails that you have. Which is is easier said than done. When you know there's a lot of e- there's a lot of valid reasons as to why trades fail, and as I've probably said a million times before, the way that different firms classify fails actually varies. So some 
you know, late late settlement is not considered a failure by some firms, and it's considered a failure by others. So the classification even of that is is quite difficult to get their heads around, and they have to adapt to it. So you know, this this idea of of this you know, rigid structure that's being imposed, um, and then obviously the buy-ins uh, will be a financial penalty on top of you know a settlement penalty that you'll receive so um it's going to be tough to to manage i think and it could be quite expensive and it will impact the front office because they'll have to price it into the trading activities at the start of all of this so it'll increase the cost of trading essentially yeah but i think i mean the other way to look at it though really is that unless a firm is dealing like exclusively ex-european um instruments, they were going to have to deal with two regimes anyway, right? I mean, so the, the, if you think about the settlement discipline applies to trade, security, settling, and European CSDs, I mean, there's really, if you're trading in those markets, you're dealing with this anyway. So it really only gives you relief if you're trading UK only, for example. And so most firms are still, who are globally oriented, are always going to be managing multiple, multiple settlement regimes. So I think that level of complexity was there anyway. So I'm not sure it, this specifically is going to lead to a sort of any more complexity than existed already. Well, look, we've, we've talked about CSDR on this podcast before and, and sort of, you know, referred to the amount of uh, letters that are coming in from various associations to, to call for, for a delay. And, uh, you know, I think we said we'd, we'd join the call for it at some point. But uh, it's nice to know that we can get to CSDR in some way or another on every single episode. Of <laughs> <series>. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, to keep on this theme as well, there's the CSDR was a you know a big big talking point um, through the network forum and, the, and their virtual meeting and and um, probably the the one standout um, a, a panel from that session was was the European Commission's um, Patrick Pearson um, who was speaking a lot about this and, and Virginia you 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 sort of listened you know quite intently on that what did you think of of uh, some of the things he said on this. Well, he was—he actually was supposed to be speaking about derivatives clearing because that's what that panel was about. <laughs> Amusingly, I went off on one as he usually does, um, and gave us sort of an update. In the, I think he, said, he spoke for about ten minutes and chucked in every single bloody regime under the sun. I was—I was quite—I was frantically taking notes as we were going. Um, and he—he he did even—he obviously referenced the high, uh, the higher than average. Um, settlement failures that happened over the, the you know the start of the crisis, um, particularly in the fixed income space, as we all know that that's not necessarily very um, well automated in the middle and back office. Um, there are lots of issues there, and that and data quality problems. So it didn't surprise me. And, and when you have an, a massive increase in volume of volatility in the market, um, operations teams will be sweating to try and get that stuff sorted out. So um, I think they are quite well aware of that. He did make reference to the SDR bit of CSDR, obviously acronyms standing for different things, but the settlement discipline bit he referenced in an offhand manner, but gave nothing away. So um, he said, we are reviewing it and it will be part of our next, you know, plan uh, back in, in the next quarter. We're going to be, we're going to be giving feedback to the industry, which was vague enough to, to not really give us anything. Um, but he did. He, he went then went on about um, operational resilience as well. So they seem to have a lot of on their plate at the moment, European Commission, um, and he seemed to be sort of looking at everybody in, in, in a certain 
you know, um, investigative manner as he was talking about this, um, about how, you know, how, how resilient are your operations and, you know, how have your, how has your firm, part, you know, managed to stand up to scrutiny over the, over the last few months. So it, it, it did sort of raise the hackles of a few people, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if we'll get a, a like from him on, on Twitter after, for this podcast after we said he, <laughs> Goes on off on one like he sometimes does. <laughs> uh, losing followers by the minute here. Um, so look, um, on to yeah, like the, the yeah the SDR development, huge part of Brexit. Um, but obviously, Brexit has been overshadowed a bit, which uh, we never thought we'd be saying a year ago. But it has been overshadowed by the the pandemic, funny enough. Um, but Sean, from the conversations you're having, I mean, are people totally um not totally forgotten about it but it, it brexit is still on their mind and there are still a lot of, there's still a lot of questions coming in from from clients of yours uh, on brexit or is it been pushed to the back of the queue a bit so i think uh, <clears throat> it started to come forward now that the sort of the volatility from march and april and covid moving from sort of uh, all hands on deck to some sort of weird new normal. I think Brexit has be, sort of come back to the fore, um, partly driven by the fact that the UK sort of passed on the deadline to ask for an extension to the transition period. So that sort of sharpened the focus a bit. So I think for the most part, I mean, when we talk to asset managers, they are largely ready um, for Brexit to happen. The big, you know, there are some open questions around now that a sort of no deal or sort of cliff edge looks likely at the end, what what needs to be considered. So people are sort of dusting down their contingency plans. But one of the big uncertainties has already been removed with the sort of UK's new offshore fund regime or OFR, uh, which is sort of a proposal to allow more or less the status quo to continue for the distribution of usits into the UK. So with that sort of seemingly in hand a lot of the uncertainty real uncertainty for asset managers has been removed okay uh virginia i'll i'll, I'll come to you next um so obviously during this this uh covid19 period you've been you've been setting up your own operations in firebrand you must be talking to a lot of people how many of the conversations are, are around brexit or how often does it come up in the in the in the you know client conversations you're having not that much, actually, surprisingly. I think people have been more focused on other things. <laughs> um, and, and they've been sort of focused on, because I speak to a lot of operations people, I speak to compliance people. Um, compli- I suppose some, some of the compliance people have referenced um, Brexit. Not necessarily, hope, well, more, more in the, the hope that it will go away. <laughs> um, I think that's generally what, the, you know, do you think this will delay the whole thing? Oh God, we're looking at a cliff edge. This isn't good. Uh, it's generally been the uh, the sentiment that I've I've, uh, I've heard from uh, from a lot of people. But I mean, on the operations side, hardly anyone's been thinking about it. They've been thinking about um, you know volatility in the market and that kind of stuff. Um, the asset servicing world have got too many other regulations to worry about to think about Brexit. I think from people I've been speaking to, anyway. Yeah, from from an editorial perspective, uh, Joe, we've we've hardly touched on it for a while. I guess obviously there's no developments, and um, the the COVID impacts and, and regulations are, are so have been yeah coming thick and fast, really, haven't they? Um, and like you say, Virginia, a lot of the questions. The same with regulations. It's 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 kind of less about uh, complying and more about 
is this going to be moved, right? <laughs> this is going to it's going to be delayed. It's going to be further down the line. So it's and to mix the two, you know, what what is still uncertain from a a FinReg standpoint and, and Brexit, Sean. So the real uncertainty that's out there, notwithstanding sort of any trend, further transition agreements, is really around equivalence rulings um, that sort of sit with the EU. Um, there's been sort of a bit of a bun fight between the UK and EU over the process for getting equivalence. Um, and so that's probably the only really outstanding issue, though, honestly, most asset managers are not banking on any really meaningful form of equivalence. So I think for the most part, the unknowns are really how is the UK going to slowly drift from the EU in terms of regulation? And what does that mean on a longer time horizon? But to Virginia's point that from now till January, most people are pretty locked into what they need to do to get ready. Anyone else have any thoughts on uh, you know, what's what's still uncertain from a FinRed fin, fin, fin point of view? <laughs> I mean, just the length of time it's going to take to negotiate a lot of the sort of the details is is a worry, really. Because I mean, they haven't done a great deal of work on some of the fundamentals of trade agreements, let alone the details of FinRed. Um, and I'd say a lot of the regulatory bodies have got their hands full at the moment. It's going to be a tough thing to do. It's quite a tough thing to impose on an industry at a point where, you know, everyone's shorthanded. God knows when the second wave of COVID-19 is going to happen. Um, it, I mean, that's sort of, it's going to all happen at the same time, I would imagine. So we're going to have, um, I, I, I just, I dread to think what the back, back end of this year is going to be like for a lot of this stuff. We are going to have a lot of, of concerns and, and worries as, as the cliff edge approaches. Um, yeah, and, and at the risk of yeah. oversimplifying this, I mean, is there a point where common sense kicks in and we do something to avoid the bottleneck of, of all this happening at once? I mean, obviously Brexit is bigger than financial regulation. Um, but, you know, there's got to be some aspects of it that we can we can tweak. Yeah, I mean, you would hope so. And I think, honestly... When people worry about Brexit now, even when I speak to sort of asset managers, they're worried more about like real real world impacts and a little less about sort of impacts on their business. And I think that's the uncertainty around, you know, basic sort of trade agreements around food, goods and services and food getting in and out of the country. And those are the bigger questions. And obviously those sort of transcend uh, the concerns of FinReg. So I think that's really the uncertainty. And so far all parties rhetoric aside have been pretty good at avoiding catastrophe. So there is reason to believe that in the 11th hour, there'll be a, a way to sort of avoid having the true brunt of Brexit happen all at once. I don't know. I think we're talking common sense here, no? And politics <laughs> and common sense don't go together, do they? <laughs> I was trying not to get onto something like that. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. up to, to get into something like that. I <laughs> said, uh, uh, I mean, Brexit. Certainly, uh, so, we've mentioned a few buzzwords here. I mean, Brexit has been recently. Bitcoin certainly has. Now, COVID nineteen. It's it's amazing the amount of things that you say. God, can you imagine ever talking about all these things together five years ago? Yeah, might <laughs> explode, but uh, that falls into it. Um, Okay, well, I, uh, un- unlike what is happening in the real world, that's Brexit done and dusted for us, I think. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and we did split this podcast into two themes today. And the second one is, is 
Um, Sean, one of your favorites, Regulatory Corporation. Um, I, I think we've done this just so we can talk to you about uh, the, the SEC and the CFTC, uh, best of friends, and you know, <laughs> should they merge into one? It's what we've been building up to the whole series. But uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll save that. And, um, and, and Virginia, I know it's something uh, you wanted to, to talk about as well. And I guess the first question I, I would have is, uh, you know, how... When it comes to regulatory cooperation, um, how successful is this in terms of yeah, regulating cross-border? I mean, I think that's where we've had so many problems in the past is, is that we have a lot of national nuances in, in compliance, right? Um, and, and, you know, corporate law, for example, tax law, all of these things that are nationally set. And then you have a, a global business <laughs> that you try and apply to it. So anything that goes cross borders is always quite painful. Um, I've, I've just sort of been looking at a lot of that stuff with regards to the asset servicing world over the last few few months. And there are a lot of reasons why we have so many sub-custodians in the market is because you do need local experts um, as well as the global custodians to, to knit it all together because it really is very localised. And cooperation hasn't always been great across even the EU, unfortunately. There's always competing national interests. And I think that's that's where, well, I mean, where you do see hotspots of cooperation, um, it doesn't tend to be driven by the EU level um, body. Sometimes, you know, sometimes some regulators just work well together. And I think that that happens mm. <laughs> not all the time, but, you know, <laughs> that's where you do see pockets of, of, you know, maybe it's innovation, the Monetary Authority of Singapore working with the, uh, you know, um, the FCA in, in the UK and, and you, you see them working on innovation and sharing ideas and things like that. Now, that's a pocket of, of cooperation, maybe not in the traditional sense, but it's interesting to see that they are sharing and collaborating with, on ideas around yeah. how to regulate reg tech and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and I think it, personalities matter too in, in sort of leadership, right? So if you look at the transformation, I would say, of the relationship between the CFTC, uh, the FCA, um, and the Commission under Giancarlo's leadership, it really, I would say, there was a fair amount of cooperation there when it came to sort of de-escalating around extraterritorial, extraterritorial regulations and deferring to local regulators within an, within sort of an agreed framework. So definitely, I think there are pockets of it um, on bigger issues. I think you run into the the local issues, especially more in Europe, um, around really sort of the nuances around, for example, like the application of fund liquidity rules for usage varies by domicile by domicile. So I think it's sort of a two steps forward, one step back a lot of times, but I would say there has been a very earnest attempt by most regulators to have some level of cooperation. Uh, Sean, what if we bring the game back from earlier? More or less regulators that work well together than, than there's been episodes of Finra Gangle. Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> have to defer on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say there's probably more. I'd hope that there's more. But, you know, you never know. There, there could be less. They don't really always... <laughs> We don't always see what goes on behind closed doors, do we, unfortunately? No, no. <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah, we would. That would make a good episode, wouldn't it? A day in the uh, <laughs> a day in the offices of uh, Ezra or CFTC. One for season two. Okay, so, and, and so moving on, did, Virginia, do the, would you say the ag- agreements and equivalence requirements provide enough groundwork when it comes to, to these regulators cooperating? I mean, they do and they don't. They, they set the minimum base level. Um, they take quite a long time to hammer out, um, but they're always, you know, they're pretty much always bilateral, right? So, um, and the minute, as, as to Sean's point earlier, the minute you get leadership change at the top, uh, the dynamics between the two regulators will change. 
Uh, and sometimes, you know, that's that means that there's there's a different focus for the regulator and they have a different um, push around where they want to either deregulate or, or, or maybe, you know, add a gold plate on top of other regulations. So I think it's a constantly moving target between regulators. So, the, the, yes, they do set sort of a minimum baseline, especially around equivalents, but that does change quite frequently. Yeah. And Sean, any, any views on, on that? No, I think that's pretty much spot on. I mean, I think there is, you can't really, outside of setting, honestly, outside of setting a base, basic level of cooperation, um, you can't really sort of mandate it. So it really is about creating the, the right environment and encouraging cooperation. And obviously it varies by parts of the industry, right? So banking through the, the Basel committees is much more coordinated historically than sort of markets and uh, securities regulation. Yeah. And and let me take this moment then, Sean, to give you a platform to talk about uh, the SEC and CFTC, um, you know, and that kind of cooperation. If I look back to, um, you know, comments about the, the two firms, so the two organizations merging, it kind of goes back to polls from all sorts of organizations and comments for the last <laughs> uh, decade plus. So, um, you know, what, what do you think about uh, those two and their, their cooperation? So I think, I mean, I think overall, you know, the, the regulatory framework in the US works pretty well. Now, I think, I, I think it would make, there's a very strong argument and it would make a lot of sense to merge the CFTC and SEC into one sort of single markets regulator uh, for the U.S. But honestly, you know, it was floated during the Dodd-Frank debates. And if, if 2008, 2009 didn't make that happen, it's really hard to see a, uh, a set of circumstances that would um, allow it to happen in the future. But that said, you know, it, it could be worse. You could be Canada that has like a half dozen to nine separate securities regulators. So there's, a, you know, thank, thank God for small blessings, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, Jenny, what do you think about those two? Um, I mean, I always make jokes about them too. I mean, I think it's it's such a long-standing thing for the industry, that, and they've had such different um, ethoses over the years, like uh, since inception, I guess. That the, the focuses and the, the way they regulate, the way they move, um, how fast they move in terms of in, in, even implementing Dodd Frank was interesting, right? So the CFTC got out of the gates really quickly. The SEC still hasn't implemented some of this stuff so um, that it was supposed to. So, it, you know, I, I think that culturally they're just not aligned at all. And I was, I, I my frequent reference for them is that I've you've probably never seen this, John or Joe, but um, West Side Story with the Jets and the Sharks, they'll never get together. You can't marry them together. It's just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, come on, we're not that young. We get West Side Story references. We weren't, yeah. we weren't there where it came out, but we're you know, socially aware of it. <laughs> come on, stay cool. Yeah, no, obviously, really familiar with the, the works of Dickens. Um, so, <laughs> uh, right, well, look, we've, we've covered quite a bit today. Um, I think uh brexit and regulatory corporations a nice a nice mix for today's episode um but uh yeah thanks for all your input from from all three of you today um sean for uh, anyone looking for your insights where can they find uh your work right as always please go to city city securities services insight at city velocity backslash insights and for jenny how about you you can get my research on www.fintechfirebrand.com or you can follow me on Twitter at fintechfire or at Virginia Shank. Joe, any plugs uh, for you today? 
not for me today. Well, can you ask me if I've got a plug? Because I've got one. <laughs> John, John, any plugs for you? Oh, yeah, I'm glad you are. So today, <laughs> just today, Global Custodian has launched another podcast series, and I hope this doesn't cannibalise what we're doing here. You can listen to both. There's enough room in the world for, for there's always a filmmaking angle. And our new series, GC Stories, which is a podcast where we talk to people from the security services industry with an incredible tale to tell. So we've got ex-professional athletes, we've got former military officers, we've got adventurers, we've got former police officers. It's a lot of familiar faces and voices, but some incredible background stories that you might not be familiar with. So um, it's well worth a listen. It's something we hope everyone can listen to as much in their downtime as they do during their working day. So, um, you know, it a, it's a, can be a nice break during uh, this lockdown period. So make sure you uh, subscribe to that as well as subscribing to There's Always a Finrag Angle podcast with our fantastic cast. So that's all for today. And thanks for listening. You were listening to There's Always a Fimreg Angle podcast with Global Custodian.